Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Uh, so today we're doing the first 150 pages of Dune, and boy oh boy, <laughs> boy oh boy, especially those of you who have not read it before, I think you're going to see uh, why no mainstream or even secondary science fiction publisher back in 1965 was willing to go anywhere near this book. <laughs> Not because it's bad, but because it's overwhelming. Uh, we are we are immediately dunked into a gigantically complicated world. Uh, it, there is an, uh, an, an interplanetary imperium thousands of years in Earth's future, uh, that has no uh, very few common references with Earth anymore. This is not this is not a far future of planet Earth. This is a future that is so different and so wild that it barely looks back at the past. Although there are echoes, uh, instead you're left with just the task of uh, treading water and grasping for anything you can in these first 150 pages to sort of uh, try to understand what's going on. Because there are many, many things going on. So let's go over a few of them. So this this future Imperium has an emperor at the top of it. And uh, a group of noble houses who either have their, their house nobility from long-standing tradition or who have it from, or who are jumped up nouveau riche nobility who get it from mercantile conquests. There is a, a vast mercantile entity known as Com, C-H-O-A-M. Those are its initials. That uh, that concentrates wealth and can make new families. Uh, and there's also a thing called the Landsrad that is very sketchily 
invoked in these 150 pages. So we don't really know much of the details of these things where, where the book is very much written at the start here as though we did. The, 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 there's almost no slowing down except in the natural interstices where characters actually explain things to each other. Uh, there are also independent entities. Uh, there is a group called the Spacing Guild. Their navigators are at the uh, the brain center nodules of giant spaceships that can fold space, and that therefore make interplanetary and inter you know intersystem travel possible, without the enormous time frame involved. In other words, that's Herbert's way of getting around the limits of the speed of light. Einsteinian physics. He gets around Einsteinian physics by giving readers guild navigators who can fold space and bring whole transport vessels from star system to star system in almost no time at all. And the guild is allegedly neutral and vastly wealthy, of course, because the Imperium would not be possible without it. Another such group, uh, there, are, there, are, there are a few splinter groups. There, For instance, there's the Bene Tylaxu, uh, a weird uh, hive planet that has, that has access to and, exper and expertise in a whole bunch of renegade types of science. Uh, there's also the Bene Gesserit, uh, an all-female uh, quasi-religious order. Uh, the, the, uh, the observation is made early in these, in these pages that we're reading today that they are in fact, that their purpose is in fact political. Uh, and the, when that observation is made, the person who hears it is a member of the Bene Gesserit and she's scandalized, not because it's not true, but because it's not common knowledge. Uh, but it it uh, it's easy to infer. The emperor himself has a Bene Gesserit consort, and the, so does uh, one of our main characters in these first 150 pages. Because we, in the beginning of the book, we are dealing with two of those noble houses, and as chance would have it, they are the two different kinds. There's the house Atreides, and specifically Duke Leto Atreides, the the head of that noble house, uh, that is as old as as old gets in terms of uh, of uh, nobility, a thing that early readers of the book noticed even in the name, since Atreides is an echo of Agamemnon and Menelaus from Homer's Iliad. That's about as far back as you can go for a high royal house. Uh, and the other family is the Harkonnens, and they are thuggish and brutish, and they are new wealth. Uh, and they there is a long-standing hatred between them and the Atreides. Uh, we, we get uh, a very brief thumbnail description of that at one point in this book. Uh, the Harkonnens won't rest until they're dead or my duke destroyed. The Baron cannot forget that Leto is a cousin to the royal blood, no matter how distant, while the Harkonnen title comes out of Comb Pocketbook. But the poison in him, deep in his mind, is the knowledge that an Atreides had a Harkonnen banished for cowardice after the Battle of Corinth. Uh, and the speaker of that little synopsis, which is, you know, like I said, synopses like that are studded throughout this book at the beginning pages so that you're not completely alone. You, you, you're not completely awash. You can, if you work real hard, hold on. And that summary is spoken by Lady Jessica, who is the consort of Duke Leto, but not his wife. She's not his duchess. She is Bene Gesserit. She's been trained by them, and she was ordered by them to give the Duke a daughter. Uh, 
the Bene Gesserit have, as will become much more evident in the later in the later books in the series, the Bene Gesserit don't just meddle in politics; they have a vast amount of carefully trained physiological and psychological abilities. One of which, of course, is that their their acolytes can control their bodies to an amazing degree, including controlling the gender of, of what the child that they provide for the men who impregnate them. Some of, the, some of the details of the science and quasi-science in these books is best not examined too closely. Uh, uh, she did not give Duke Leto a daughter. She loves him, and he loves her. He's not marrying her because it gives him a small amount of leverage with the other royal houses who are hoping for an alliance, an official alliance. Uh, but she finds that she can't obey the sisterhood, so she gives him a son, Paul Atreides, who is his heir. Uh, and when this book starts, the Atreides, who have been ruling the, the beautiful, lush, watery planet of Caladan for many, many, many generations, uh, have been ordered by the Emperor to move. They've been ordered by the Emperor to take over the planet Arrakis, known uh, colloquially as Dune, uh, that is under the control of the Harkonnens, who have been using it and brutalizing its its native population and hunting for sport its its uh, indigenous warrior people the Fremen and the Harkonnen have also been mining the planet for spice for the spice melange which is unbelievably uh, valuable as a commodity I think I think we have uh, it's it's science fiction gobbledygook but it'll give you a hint uh, the spice brings 620,000 solaris to the decagram on the open market right now, and that wealth buys many things. Uh, those things, those measures aren't explained, but it's clear that the spice only happens on Dune. And in addition to, it's highly addictive, and it gives its addicts a telltale sign. The whites of their eyes disappear, their eyes become blue on blue. It prolongs life. Uh, enhances sensory perception. It's also responsible for a good deal of other things. It, it for instance, enhances the Bene Gesserit truth-sayers, women who can who are, function as living lie detectors. It also enhances the function of mentats, uh, a school of humans who, were, who have been trained over the centuries to rival and exceed uh, what, we, what we know of as computers. Long in the past of the society that we see in this book, computers have been completely forbidden. AI has been completely forget, forbidden. Uh, there is a, a commandment in the, in the new Bible that these characters all know uh, as a work of literature. There's a commandment, thou shalt not make a machine in the image of a man. Uh, and that is, that is a, a reflection. They, of course, AI was not a term that was known to Frank Herbert, but the, the idea that of super complex machines has been banished from the world. There was an event that took place a long time ago called the Butlerian Jihad, in which such machines were destroyed and forbidden. Uh, but you still need you still need higher computation. You still need a machine that will do all of that stuff. So in, instead of those machines, humans have been bred to do that, called mentats, who can assess data at a far greater speed than any machine ever could, and use it to extrapolate likely outcomes, less likely outcomes, etc., etc., uh, uh, the the houses, the royal houses, all have mentats, and Baron Harkonnen, 
Baron, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen is the, the main bad guy of the book. He is the head of the House Harkonnen, and he's the one who has been ordered to leave Dune, to evacuate, even though it's been a cash cow for him. And he has a mentat who is uh, twisted, uh, badly addicted, not just to melange, but to other substances, and also a sadist. But he's not the only one. Duke Leto also has a mentat who works as his master of assassins, Thufir Hawa, who is who served the old Duke, Duke Leto's father, and uh, now serves, you know, Duke Leto and the son and heir, young Paul. And uh, the Atreides know that they're walking into a trap. They know that the Emperor would only make this move because he's jealous. Duke Leto is popular with the Lanzarote. He's, pop he's popular with the noble assemblies. They like him a lot more than they like the Emperor. And... Uh, of course, there's long-standing bad blood between the Atreides and the Harkonnens, so the Harkonnens uh, can be expected uh, to lay traps and to have a larger plan in mind. Uh, and the extent of that plan is made clear to us as readers early on in these pages. There's, there's uh, a weak scene, unfortunately, but it's sort of necessary, otherwise your reader would be totally lost. There's a weak scene where Baron, Baron Harkonnen is gloating and exposition dumping his plan in the company of his twisted mentat and also his nephew, Fade Rotha, who's going to have a pivotal role at the very end of the book, uh, but who is, is seen in these early pages as kind of an evil counterpart to Paul. Uh, the Baron explains his plan, which is to not just have revenge on House Atreides, but to eliminate it, to wipe it out completely. There are, as the Baron puts it, there are wheels within wheels, there are plans within plans, and it's pretty early on in the book that an attentive reader will see uh, that the Imperium, that the, that the Emperor, is in league with the Harkonnens. Uh, so early on we know in the book that the Harkonnens have an agent in the Atreides camp, someone who will betray the Atreides, someone who, who will bring about the downfall of the house. That that attendant is uh, Dr. Yua, who is the, the family doctor. He treats all the, of the royal personages, and he has an imperial kind of training, Sukh training, that is used on uh, uh, Dr. Acolytes at this far future period in order to make them trustworthy enough to practice medicine on people without those people like the Emperor himself fearing assassination. Dr. Yu has had that training and that training is alleged to be unbreakable. So uh, although he is the likely suspect as, as Baron Harkonnen's twisted mentat lays out, although Dr. Yu is the likely suspect, the Duke will not in fact suspect him. Uh, because of that training, and that they will, the Harkonnens will arrange events to to dangle a different suspect in front of the Duke and in front of Thufir Hawat, who is in, in charge of the security of the family once they move into these new Dune quarters. And that suspect is Lady Jessica herself, uh, who's been a Jesuit and who is therefore uh, carrying a weight of untrustworthiness. So uh, <coughs> the upshot of these first 150 pages is that the family is moving into a trap. They're moving from a, a blue water world to a desert world. Uh, Dune has no oceans, no lakes, it has tiny polar ice caps and a few rocky outcrops and all the rest 
are vast oceans of sand that are inhabited by giant sandworms uh, that are big enough to swallow buildings. They are they are absolutely enormous, and they uh, guard the spice. As young Paul notices fairly early on in the book, there seems to be a connection between the, the, the worms and the spice. Uh, one of the earliest memorable scenes in the pages that we're reading today involves a reverend mother uh, of the Bene Gesserit, uh, someone who outranks Lady Jessica in her own order, who tests young Paul. Uh, it's a it's an off-quoted scene. I think it's a little overdone, but she tests him in order, as she puts it, to find out whether or not he's human. What she's really looking for is to see if there's any chance that he is a thing known as the Kwisatch Haderach, a thing that the Bene Gesserit have been breeding towards for centuries, but also afraid of for centuries, and that is a man who possesses their physical, psychological, and extrasensory powers. Uh, Lady Jessica was ordered to produce a daughter uh, for Duke Leto. The long-term plan of the sisterhood was to marry that daughter to the male heir of another character in this book, and thereby, uh, to the best of their projections, produce the Kwisatz Haderach. But the Reverend Mother is wondering if Paul is that figure ahead of time, especially since he seems to have oddities about him. Long before he goes to Dune, he seems to have oddities about him. Uh, there's a trembling sense of potential there, because the spice melange enhances oddities like that, sometimes in unpredictable ways. And, as characters put it, you can't escape the spice when you're on Dune. It's everywhere. It's in the air, it's in the food, it's everywhere. It's in the dust on the hallways of your home. There's no way to avoid it. So it's going to have an effect on Paul, one way or another. But <laughs> well, we get, we'll get that in the next uh, 150 pages that we're reading. In these 150 pages, the main work that is done uh, is to set up the events that are coming, is, is to, to give the reader a sort of immersion into this world of extremely high-stakes, noble cut-and-thrust uh, politics. Uh, where Duke Atreides knows that he's leading his family into a trap and insists that he will make the best of it, insists that the trap will not win. He has no idea the full extent of the opposition that's up against him, but it wouldn't matter anyway. We're, we're told early on in these pages that he ha always has an option. He could go rogue, he could go renegade, he could take the family's uh, storehouse of atomic weapons, the, the family storehouse of money, and just leave, go beyond the Imperium and become a renegade house. But everybody that uh, that has anything to do with Duke Leto knows that he wouldn't do that. He's a proud, officious man, and brave. So he won't he won't run. Instead, he walks into this trap, and Thufir Hawat has been over the royal the, the compound in in uh, Arakeen when they when they land. He's, he and his agents have been over it with a fine tooth comb to hunt out booby traps that were left behind by the Harkonnen to, to hurt or maybe kill as many trade as, as possible. Staffs have been replaced with Hawat's men. Landing gear people have been replaced with Hawat's men. Pilots have been replaced with Hawat's men. And he feels he's done a secure job. But in the most dramatic scene of the 150 pages that we're reading today, it turns out he missed something. Young Paul is in his bedroom in this new keep when a, a small device detaches itself from the bed, a remote-controlled hunter-seeker thing that is that will pierce his skin and enter his bloodstream like a sliver and kill him. And uh, the operator has to be nearby 
which is probably why Hawat uh, failed to detect this thing because he was figuring if he has made it impossible for there to be an operator nearby, then there cannot be any such thing as a hunter-seeker in the young heir's room. But there is one. Paul has been trained by his mother in the Bene Gesserit ways, the physical ways, the, the physical training and conditioning ways, the sensory ways, the perception ways. Uh, another small dis, uh, disobedience on her part. She's trained him to a greater extent than the sister who would probably have allowed. Uh, and that training allows him to save his own life, to, to disable this thing. While that's going on, in another part of the compound, Lady Jessica has found a room. And it has an oval door with a, with a pressure seal, a moisture seal. She doesn't know what it is. And when she opens it, she finds an astonishing thing on a planet like Dune. She finds a conservatory. A lush, overgrown, green conservatory. The one place on Arrakis that she's seen that has this kind of growth. Uh, that was created, it takes a huge amount of water <laughs> on a planet that doesn't have it. It takes a huge amount of water to, to create and maintain it. It was created and maintained by the previous uh, Imperial Legate on the planet, Count Fenring and his wife, Margo. Margo is being a Jesuit. And when Jessica finds the place, she knows immediately that there must be some important thing here. That, the, if, the, that if Lady Margo was going to leave her a message of any kind, about their new home, it would be in this room. But Howat's already gone over it, every inch of it. And when she she finds a, a table underneath uh, underneath a hanging plant that has a message of goodwill from Lady Mario, and Jessica realizes, okay, the message doesn't tell me anything. And Howat would have seen it, and he would have seen everything else. But there has to be a message here. And eventually, she realizes that the leaf overhanging the notepad might be the answer. She feels underneath the leaf, and there are pinpricks in a coded message of the Bene Gesserit that give her a warning, a far more uh, detailed warning than anything that she's had so far. Uh, may, uh, the, the official uh, message that Lady Fenring leaves is, May this place give you as much pleasure as it has given me. Please permit the room to convey a lesson we learned from, from the same teachers. The proximity of a desirable thing tempts one to overindulgence. On that path lies danger. Uh, Jessica nodded, remembering that Leto had referred to the Emperor's former proxy here as Count Fenring. Uh, but the hidden message of the note demanded immediate attention, couched as it was in ways to inform her the writer was another Bene Gesserit. A bitter thought touched Jessica in passing. Count Fenring had married his lady. Even, though, even as this thought flicked across her mind, she was bending to seek out the hidden message. It had to be there. The visible note contained the code phrase, every Bene Gesserit not bound by a school injunction was required to give another Bene Gesserit when conditions demanded it. Quote, on that path lies danger. Jessica felt the back of the note rubbed the surface for coded dots. Nothing. The edge of the pad came under her seeking fingers. Nothing. She replaced the pad where she found it, feeling a sense of urgency. Something in the position of the pad, perhaps, she wondered. But how it had been over this room, doubtless had moved the pad. She looked at the leaf above the pad. The leaf. She brushed a finger under the surface, along the edge, along the stem. Uh, and it was here. It was there. Her fingers detected the subtle coded dots, scanned them in a single passage. This is what the message said. Your son and the Duke are in immediate danger. A bedroom has been designed to attract your son. The H loaded it with death traps to be discovered, leaving one that may escape detection. 
I do not know the exact nature of the menace, but it has something to do with a bed. The threat to your duke involves the defection of a trusted companion or lieutenant. The H planned to give you as a gift to a minion. To the best of my knowledge, this conservatory is safe. Forgive that I cannot tell more. My sources are few, as my count is not in the pay of the H. In haste, M.F. Uh, all those things, uh, Herbert is very, very skilled at dropping notes like that all throughout these 150 pages. He plays the tension, the increasing tension, beautifully. We know from early on, as readers of the book, we know from early on who the traitor is in, in the Atreides household. And we know that he is not suspected. There's a, a horrible scene where he's talking, where Dr. Yuru is talking to Lady Jessica and comes an inch away from admitting everything to her. The, the Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen has promised Dr. Yuru uh, to intervene and save his wife, who is Beanie Jesuit. And Ewan knows that Harkonnen is lying. He knows that his wife is probably dead. Uh, but he plays along because he sees it as his chance to exact revenge on the Harkonnens. And his pitiless arithmetic on the subject is that he needs the Atreides to do that. These people who've been good to him, who've been wonderful to him, and who inspire loyalty, he is willing to serve them up in an all-consuming quest for vengeance against Baron Var Harkonnen. And we know that. Herbert gives us his thoughts in scenes like this. We know all of that. All, the only thing we don't know in these first 150 pages is whether or not he will succeed. Whether or not the whole plan will succeed. Although Herbert does a great job here of drawing the dark clouds over everything. Uh, so there are two processes going on here. The one is this plan coming closer and closer to fruition with the reader never knowing. On tenterhooks the whole time. Not knowing when it's going to happen, how it's going to happen. The other strand that grows throughout is doomed, but we don't know that for sure in these first pages of reading it for the first time. Duke Leto is trying to make the best of a bad situation. He is he is looking at the potential of Dune, of a planet as harsh and unforgiving as Dune. Not only the potential in terms of spice and the unimaginable wealth and power that it gives to its to the person who runs that fiefdom, but also the Fremen. In an idea that comes up a few times in these early pages, the the emperor uh, is served by an elite military unit called the Sardaukar. They are super soldiers, and they are unbeatable on the field. And one of the reasons why they are is because they are trained in a horrible, horrible place. Seleucus Secundus is a horrible hellhole of a planet, a place that kills the weak and hardens the strong to the point of super strength. Uh, and Duke Leto has realized, and so have his men. We meet, we meet a few of his men here. There's, there's Thufir Hawat, his master of assassins. There's Gurney Halleck, uh, a master at arms and also a, a bit of a troubadour. Uh, there's an, a rather enigmatic figure called Duncan Idaho, who is Duke Leto describes him as proud but ethical, uh, and, and a few other people. But uh, these people have the Duke especially have realized that Doom, the planet Arrakis, is far more inhospitable than Seleucus Secundus, and that if the Fremen could be made to trust the Atreides, they could be trained into a fighting force to match the Sardaukar. That is uh, quite literally a revolutionary thought. <laughs> uh, and we get to see that. We get to see those plans building. We get to see the Atreides reaching out to the Fremen 
meeting their leaders and and uh, learning their ways. Uh, and all of this is overseen by a, an allegedly impartial official, an Imperium official called the Judge of the Change, and who will oversee to make sure that the that the whole process happens legally, that the one royal uh, noble house moves out and the new noble house moves in. Now, the Judge of the Change in this case is uh, the judge of the change is obviously implicated in the, the corruption of the whole process. Obviously, the whole process is not uh, normal. This is this is kindly. This is vengeance of, of fight to the death between two houses. So, but nevertheless, uh, we have all of that as a premise in these first 150 pages. Uh, the attack on young Paul Atreides sends shockwaves throughout the whole of the Atreides camp and heightens the tensions that were already existing and that will make it easier for uh, suspicion to be thrown on Lady Jessica. Uh, and that is where these pages end. So uh, we will read uh, the next 150 pages next time. So uh, we stopped this time around at the uh, at the chapter that there are no there are no chapter numbers here so we're gonna have to rough it uh, we stopped at the chapter that re that starts with the Duke found Thufir Hawat alone in the corner room to which a guard directed him uh, and the, we're gonna stop next time uh, in this new uh, ace edition paperback uh, it's page 304 that that could vary in your own in your own edition obviously so we're gonna stop next time at the chapter that starts Paul felt that all his past, every experience before this night, had become sand curling in an hourglass. Uh, so that's where we're going we're to start next time, or stop next time. Uh, so in the meantime, I'm curious to know, those of you especially who have always had Dune on the shelf and never attempted it, what you're making of all this. Are you, are you fairly clear? Have you, for instance, consulted with plot summaries online? Uh, to maybe give yourself a little edge, uh, because I, you know that wouldn't be wrong to do. There's all sorts of character and motivation and drama at work in these early chapters that you won't be paying attention to because you'll be trying to grab hold of the plot a lot of times. So I, you know, I don't begrudge that at all. But I'm curious to know: Did you feel like you needed to do that? Uh, these these first 150 pages for new readers in 2019 will inevitably function as a referendum on Herbert's craft. I think it works just barely. I when I first read I first read this book uh, as soon as word started to spread about it I found a copy I forget who the uh, who the publisher was it was an odd publisher for a book if you heard it you I, I don't remember who it was but if you heard it you'd know you'd think okay well, I know that publisher but they don't publish novels <laughs> it was weird it was a weird thing it was it's a pattern that we find often in mega bestsellers in in the 20th century that all the the normal publishing houses will just back away and then some odd publishing house will will jump forward another another big example of that would be the hunt for red october by tom clancy which was turned down by every major publishing house that he sent it to and finally published by the naval institute press and then went on to become a massive bestseller i didn't i didn't know about this immediately i think an entire summer passed until i'd heard word of mouth from all sorts of science fiction fans that you have to read this and when i read it the first time 50 years ago uh, I thought, you know, I was no stranger to immersion science fiction. Science fiction likes to do that to its readers. I was no stranger to books that try that. But even so, I was thinking, all right, well, this is an enormous story. And 
you're taking a lot of gambles with your reader's attention to hold, to hold on before they know anything. But it's those gambles are working. Herbert is really good at using the personal elements of the plot to keep you interested while you're learning the non-personal elements. So I'm wondering if that is true for you uh, this time around. And those of you who are rereading this, what jumped out at you? What jumped out at you that that uh, that maybe didn't the last time? Uh, so that's that's it for now. This is this is not exactly Dune Tube. This is adjacent to Dune Tube. Uh, so next week we'll read the next 150 pages. The following week will be everybody's videos. Everybody for DuneTube will make a video on that week, uh, that weekend, and I will too. But it will be uh, it will. I think I will continue the read along. I think we'll do the next 150 pages then, and then uh, so so those of you who are reading along for the first time and are doing the read along on this channel, 150 pages at a time might want to save those videos for that weekend until we're all done because I imagine those videos in the third weekend of the month are going to talk about the book as a whole and boy oh boy are there things in the last 50 pages of this book that you don't want spoiled <laughs> oh my there are so you might want to uh, if you're reading along and you plan on sticking to that to 150 pages a week you might want to wait to watch those videos until the end of the month uh, but uh, that's where we're going to go uh, for next time. So we'll do 150 pages next time, and then 150 pages after that, only that will be the weekend when everybody does their videos. So uh, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep doing a read-along, and then I, I will discuss the, the whole thing in the, in the final week of our read-along. Uh, so that's that's it for now. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up, but we have other read-alongs to do, so I will be back. <laughs> The Steve Donahue Show is a production of CPL Radio, a service of the Cedarburg Public Library located in Cedarburg, Wisconsin.